Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 57? That sounds a little loud, doesn't it? Until the destruction passes, there is a, well, let's look at it. Bonk. Well, why am I not clicking? Huh. Okay. The cry for mercy. Let's look at it here. Again, I'll probably be one verse ahead of you from the Hebrew text. So it's easy to keep up with, though. For the conductor, I'll t- this is just Al-Tashach. That's just some musical instru- uh, instructions of David Amichama, a meditative psalm. When he fled from Saul, from before Saul, in the cave. So we go back to 1 Samuel 22 and we get the um, background of David's calamity here. In chapter 21, he had gotten the bread from the priest Ahimelech at uh, Nob. Doeg the Edomite was there. Doeg the Edomite is an enemy of David. He reported to Saul that Achimelech the priest had given David the bread, and he also gave him Goliath's sword. David leaves. And as he leaves, he goes to Adullam, and there uh, he finds a cave. Word gets out to, to his family. He's like, maybe he sends word to his family, his brothers and his father's household. And so they come to join him there, as do all of those who were troubled, distressed, who were bankrupt in debt. All those people came, and among them about 400 men, and they joined with David, and that was his initial army. He takes his parents over into Moab, to Mizpah, over into Moab, And David there asks the king of Moab to look after his parents, which he does. David comes back to where he was. During all that time, Saul sends for Ahimelech the priest. And he comes before the king, Saul, and Saul asks him, did you do thus and so with regard to David? He said, well, sure, yeah, he was hungry. I gave him some food. He took Goliath's sword as well. Saul then, um, he was, you know, he was crazy. So he ordered his servants, his his bodyguards immediately around him. There were 85 priests. Saul orders them all to be killed and his servants wouldn't do it. So Doag the Edomite said, I'll do it. He killed 85, but some of them, some of the sons of them escaped and went to David. And so now Saul intensifies his pursuit of David. That's what brings us to this psalm. When he fled from before Saul in the cave, that is the cave at Adullam. So here comes his cry for mercy. Be gracious to me, Elohim, be gracious to me. Because my soul took refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the destruction passes. The horrors, the destruction passes. 
So he takes refuge in, in uh, Elohim and in the shadow of his wings. You may recall, okay, so we consider the Holy of Holies, and in there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box, a wooden box overlaid with gold. On either end were golden images of the cherubim. The cherubim, we are taught in, in uh, the Bible, in the Old Testament, were a special order of angelic beings who were tasked with, make, with, with carrying out the will of God. They were very fast. So the will of God, the, the Holy Spirit uh, commands or whatever, and the cherubim with, with extraordinary speed can go anywhere in the universe and would make sure that it was executed. That was their purpose. Their purpose was to execute the will of God. In um, Ezekiel, four of them, one on each corner of the chariot, the Mechabah, the, the chariot throne of the Son of God, who is seated high and lofty above, and there down there were those wheels, wheels within wheels. It's an interesting sort of a description. Overhanging the overdome was, an, uh, was the, uh, the, the sapphire-type ice frost, and it was that throne that, and it had an, a, an appearance like an electrical storm, a thunderstorm. And it was that throne that Ezekiel saw coming toward him uh, to, to give to him his, his prophecy. And these awesome creatures, you know, they had four faces and they had all these wings. And they were, there were four of them. There were originally five of them. And their captain, their leader was uh, Daystar. He was, the, he was their leader. He was the one who became the dragon, Satan. Uh, so he fell. One of them fell, but the other four were still there. They are seen then, at, their images are seen with their wings outstretched toward one another over the lid of the mercy seat, which was the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the mercy seat. It was on the mercy seat that blood was spilled on, uh, on Yama Kapur, on uh, uh, the, the Day of Atonement once a year and only once a year, and that's when the high priest would go in and spill the blood of the, of the uh, atoning sacrifice. So it's a figure that's used quite often, especially in the Psalms, in the shadow of your wings. So if you think the shadow of the wings would be the place under their outstretched wings, and that which was under their outstretched wings was the mercy seat. In uh, the New Testament, the tax collector and the Pharisee are praying. And the tax collector, the publican, you know, he collapses in repentance and won't even look up and begs for mercy. And when he cries out, it's the only place in the Bible where the verb is used, the verb form of the mercy seat. And he cries out and he says, be mercy seated to me, O Lord. I need you on the mercy seat for me. 
I need the blood applied. I, I, need, I need to be cared for, forgiven, taken care of. Well, and of course, the proud Pharisee beats his chest and he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this old nasty tax collector. So the mercy seat is the place where you can collapse upon and find God's mercy. It was the place, as I said, where the blood was spilled on, on the day of atonement. And that was the signal when he came back out, when the high priest came back out from the Holy of Holies, having, having offered the sacrifice, spilled, spilled the blood, sprinkled and scattered the blood, then all of Israel, who were, those who were there, would, of course, erupt in hallelujah because now their sins were forgiven completely and absolutely, and there was nothing that would stand against them in their record before Yahweh, their God. So this mercy seat, this place in the shadow of the wings, was a place of, a place of absolute refuge, Absolute safety. Nothing could touch you there. So here's David and he says, be gracious to me, Elohim. My soul took refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the destruction passes. It's, it's also in the, in the language, it's not exactly like Passover, but it kind of synonymous, it kind of reminds you of Passover so he could he was absolutely safe in his heart. He knew he was safe if he took re refuge in his heart, in his soul, in the shadow of the wings. Now, of course, this would be a spiritual experience. He didn't mean that he actually went into the Holy of Holies. He couldn't do that. He wasn't allowed to do that. But he could plead his case and he could spiritually plead for the same blessings from Yahweh that Yahweh would give to Israel on the day of atonement. So he sees himself now in crying for mercy on that mercy seat. He could say it just like that tax collector did in the New Testament. He could literally say, be mercy seated to me. Find me there at the place of absolute forgiveness and the refuge of Absolute safety. So he has no other choice. The, we've talked about it many times. The, the, pretty, the fairly large army that Saul had in seeking out David to kill him. So at this cave, he just he cries out to God for mercy. He sees no other way of being helped. Then he confesses his trust in, in uh, the Lord. I will call... Upon the most high God, the God who completes what he promised for me. The Lord, very early in David's life, had ordered Samuel, commanded Samuel to anoint David, to seek him out first, and then anoint him. Then later in his life, David would receive the covenant, uh, the Davidic covenant that would always assure that a son of David would all be, always be seated on the throne. So he has, he has specific promises upon which he can rely. And so he goes, 
He goes high above everything in his cry to the most high God. And he said, you know, you're the one who will fulfill your word. You will complete what you've started in my life. So he expresses his trust in the Lord. He, he will send from heaven and save me from the disgrace of him who yearns to swallow me up forever. Elohim, God, will send his kindness and his truth, his covenant love and his truth. How many times does the psalmist in the Psalms call upon God to express his covenant love, to fulfill his covenant love? Here's the deal about the covenant. It does not start with us. It starts with God. We wouldn't have even known to ask for a covenant. Except that God graciously reveals himself to those whom he would and graciously will establish a covenant. In this case, the word of God rests upon David, promises rest upon David's life. It looks like his enemies are about to take him apart and, and kill him, probably not just him, but those who were following him humbly. But he knows that the Most High God will do what he said he would do, and he will send from heaven that which it takes to save him from the disgrace. Now, in, in the greater expanded uh, context of David's problems here are found the root, which were scandalous lies about David. They, they, they said things to confuse people about David so that people wouldn't be so quick to hide him or to take him in or to feed him or to help him or whatever. All kinds of confusion and misinformation from Saul's camp, his army, his throne about David. And of course, these, these were the enemies of David. They sought to disgrace him. But Yahweh, in, send, in establishing the covenant, creates an unbreakable bond between himself and the one whom he has declared as his own. In this specific case, it would be David. David calls upon Yahweh to extend and remember his covenant love toward those with whom he made a covenant and his truth, those things which he has declared about those whom he has, with whom he has made a covenant. So he just rests upon the power and word of God, the covenant of God, the truth of God, the strength of God, the shadow of the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim were very powerful. And in the shadow of the wings of the cherubim, it also, it also was an implication in the prayer, or maybe a better way to say it, it was an expectation that being in that shadow meant that the worshiper had the very strength of the cherubim themselves. They're awesome and powerful. One of them, as you know, who fell from his original state, still has that power. Cherub, the, 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 the power of the anointed cherub, 
as David, as Ezekiel calls him, Ezekiel 28. So he's very powerful, but there are four more of the unfallen ones than there are of the fallen ones. So he appeals in the shadow of those wings to the place of safety guaranteed by the word of God and those his, the servants of Almighty God, his cherubim, who could do anything. I mean, they were swift, fast, strong. They're the very ones who were created to hold up, to bear up the Merkaba throne of the Son of God. And the Spirit from that throne, the Spirit would, be in, would, 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 receive, would receive instruction from God the Son. God the Spirit would then make the commands to the Kerbim. And they could swiftly move anywhere, anywhere, any way across the universe, across God's creation and see to it. Nothing could stand in the way of the cherubim. It was one, one, they were, you know, the fiery sword of the cherub was what guarded the way to the tree of life back after the fall of man. So a big part of their job description is to guard the way to the tree of life. It's still accessible, but now it's only accessible by way of a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, because God tore the skins off of animals and covered the man and the woman so that if they would look back to the garden from whence they had been cast, they would see between themselves and the tree of life Slain sacrifices whose coverings now were covering them, whose blood spilled and whose lives had been given in their behalf. So this way to the tree of life is guarded and protected by the cherubim. And all of that has to do, of course, with what the Ark of the Covenant means and the the Ten Commandments on the inside of it, and the one whose very life was illustrated by the ark itself. The wood, the fine wood, expressing the humanity of the Christ, overlaid with the gold, expressing the deity of the Christ. Well, this is what he calls upon. He calls upon this, and then he rests upon the Upon the word and covenant of Elohim. I mean, what, what could be stronger than that? Now he finds the severe crisis here as he expresses how his soul, my soul is among lions. I lie among men who are aflame. Their teeth are like spears and arrows and their tongue is like a sharp sword. This is an expression from David In his prayer, declaring to God the crisis of the scandalous tongues of his enemies, he describes their tongues as deadly weapons. There is a word, there are three Greek words in the New Testament that are translated hell. One is Hades, that's Hades, Hades. That is the, uh, the netherworld abode of the wicked dead. 
The other word is Gehenna, Gehenna, which is the valley of Hinnom. It's the, it's the fire that never burns out. That's the lake of fire. The third word is used only once and it's in Peter's writing and it talks about a particular place in hell that is, that is specifically bad and it is, it is, it is, it is locked underneath all the rest of Hades. And the Greek word is Tartarus, which speaks of the place where certain fallen angels are kept and are not allowed access to the human race. And they're in Tartarus. Souls of the wicked dead in Hades. But Hades, <laughs> as bad as it is, is paradise compared to Tartarus, which is where the these, some of these certain fallen angels who apparently are so powerful until the tribulation are not allowed to have access to the human race. Now, all of that in mind, the only fire of hell in James that is spoken of, which is the fire, the eternal punishing fire of damnation, which is the lake of fire. There's nobody in the lake of fire right now. A lot of people in Hades, they're in torment. Hades will regurgitate its dead at the great white throne. And the dead, the death and hell, the sea, they give up the dead that are in them. And those are the ones of the second resurrection who are, who are in the resurrection of damnation and they are in corruptible, horrible bodies outfitted to be tormented forever. Always, always feeling the worm. Always feeling the worm that never dies. Always feeling the flame that is never quenched. Always abiding in the outer darkness, which is eternal blindness. It's awful. Well, there's nobody there yet. But it's flame, according to James sets on fire the tongue. The only other place, the only other place that the fire of Gehenna is used except to describe the horrible second death, the final separation. And the Holy Spirit in James gives us an indication of how horribly deadly the tongue can be. This is that which David speaks. These men are aflame, teeth like spears and arrows, tongue like a sharp sword, deadly. And so he appeals to Yahweh to help him to escape this. Be exalted above the heavens, Elohim, over all the earth. Be your glory. They prepared a net for my steps. He bent down my soul. They dug a pit before me. But they are the ones who are going to fall into it forever. What they see, so here's the deal in his prayer that Yahweh gives him, he is inspired with this prayer and Yahweh says in, in the heart of David, as he pins this prayer, this Psalm, he says, here's how I'm going to deliver you. What they're trying to do to you, I will do to them. What they think is a is a, is a fall for you will be a fall to them. 
So here he goes, following, following always the normal pattern of David's prayer, he comes into this time of uh, worship. My heart is steadfast with Elohim. My heart is firm, steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awaken my honor or my glory. Awaken me, awaken lyre and harp, his musical instruments. He was a musician. And I will awaken the dawn. So what he means is he's going to be singing and playing his instruments when the sun comes up because God will not forsake him and the glory that is peculiarly his as the anointed king, though he's not on the throne yet here. I will thank you among the peoples, Adonai, Lord, Master. I will sing your praises among the kingdoms. So David will become a king. And we are taught here that David's defeats of other kingdoms and nations was not without its praise to Yahweh from David in the presence of the defeated armies. For your kindness is great up to the heavens and your truth is up to the skies. Be exalted above the heavens, Elohim, and he is. Here's a heaven and a heaven and a heaven, but Yahweh is above all of that, Elohim. Be exalted above the heavens, Elohim, over all the earth. Be your glory. Now the beautiful thing of that is that, I don't know, David could not have known what a major player he would be in the final establishment of the glory of God in all the earth. The earth shall be full, shall be filled with his honor and glory as waters that cover the sea. It would be the son of David who would reign supreme over planet earth and the glory of God would be seen Everywhere in the lives of all of those who enter into that time. Well, okay, so he is delivered from what appeared to be impending destruction. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the promises that you've made to us, for the refuge that is ours in that place that has been secured by Christ. Teach us how to pray like this. Teach us how to live in this faith and how to deal with the things of life the way that David learned in his day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.